Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. A health crisis, the financial fallout, and a lack of trust in government, all challenges facing leaders in Baltimore City. This episode of the Free to Be More podcast, we go one-on-one with two familiar city leaders who are trying to move Baltimore into the future. Named a legislator to watch, State Senator Corey McRae has served six years in Annapolis serving the city of Baltimore. Senator McRae, thank you so much for joining us. Megan, thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. I want to go back to the beginning. You grew up in Baltimore and your path to being a state senator is pretty unique. Talk to me about growing up and how you got to be in Annapolis. Yep. So um, live in the Overly community. I lived there with my wife, Demetria, since I've known since the age of 17. I lived there with my four kids, Kennedy, Reagan, CJ and Bryson. As you stated, I'm born and raised in the city of Baltimore. Faced a number of the challenges that a lot of our youth go through just growing up in an urban jurisdiction. I graduated from a school, Fairmont Harford. For those that are uh, a little bit older than me, maybe a generation older than me, they called it Lake Clifton Middle. And currently, Breach is in there. It's at Harford and 25th. Uh, Megan, when I graduated from high school, like a lot of young folks, we don't know what we're going to do. And I'm lucky that I had a mom that never gave up on her son. And she actually reached out to the Department of Labor License and Regulation at the time, Maryland DOL, and asked them for every apprenticeship program in the state of Maryland. And when she reached out, she then gave me the application. They mailed all of the uh, apprenticeship programs and told me to go fill out applications. I went. Luckily, I was accepted into the International Brotherhood of Workers. And at that time, I went through that five-year apprenticeship program, and it kind of shifted the trajectory of my life because it put me around people that was different than the four-by-four block radius that I knew. They had uh, owned corner stores, uh, houses, and things of that nature. So I had the ability to go to school for free. Actually, they paid you to go to school one day every two weeks, and every other day I went to work and I learned a trade. And at that time, I want to say at the age of 20, I started buying houses up and down Bel Air Road. So now I figured out how to make money. I just need to figure out how to do it legit and then model what I saw in other people. Then I started to pay attention to politics. I tell folks sometimes, Megan, that women are smarter than men. I told you that I met Demetria at 17. Immediately when she turned 18, she went out and she participated in a democratic process by voting. I really didn't get it, Megan, until I was about 25, 26, and I realized how politics intertwine in everything that we do. Whether you want your streets repaid, or whether our libraries are properly funded, that's political. Whether our schools and what they look like, that's political. What our higher education institutions look like, that's all political. I got my training wheels in the House of Delegates. I was sworn in in 2015. I worked on legislation such as voting rights, making sure that we restored voting rights to over 40,000 people that were on parole or probation. The first time they got the right to vote was in 2016, and that was because of an effort that we led in the Maryland House of Delegates. I worked on increasing apprenticeship opportunities for young people across the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland, as stated, because that's what I believe saved my life. I also worked on transparency, and as you enter into the 21st century economy, you think about transparency and how folks need to believe in their government again. Folks are apathetic because they don't see and feel how it works for them. And it's our responsibility as representatives for the state of Maryland to 
make sure that folks believe in that system again. After that, I then went and took on one of the most challenging things that I've ever done in my life. I ran for the Maryland State Senate. 2019, I was sworn in, Megan. And since then, I've hit the ground running. We worked on minimum wage, increased the minimum wage up to $15 an hour over a set period of time. We worked on our drinking water within our schools and making sure that it's lead free, making sure that folks have healthy food opportunities within their neighborhoods. And more recently, I'm working on a bill for our Enoch Pratt Free Library to make sure that we have a safe space for our young people, for our seniors, those folks that need it the most with extended hours and extended days. Yeah, I do want to dive into that. Why do you feel like it's so important this bill would keep and maintain the hours that were extended a few years ago? Why is it so important for those hours to be comparable to what they have in Baltimore County and Anne Arundel County, all the jurisdictions around us? Yeah, just so that everyone knows, the listening audience knows, Megan is referencing Senate Bill 477. The question that's asked is, why is this important? You got to remember that I grew up in my library. At the time, I can remember going to Rocknell Heights Elementary School. I can remember my library, my Enoch Pratt Free Library in the village being walking distance. I remember during those summer months where we might not have went on some form of vacation, but my library was my saving grace in reference to making sure that I can imagine and having that imagination in reference to being whoever you want to be. I can think about at that time was Mayor Kurt Smoke when I was coming up in an elementary school. And Mayor Kurt Smoke had a program called The Race to Read. And I can remember every week, my mom taking me to the library to pick up books. And I can remember that year, I read 103 books. And I think my little sister had read 101 books that entire summer while we were on summer break. Just wanted to share that so that you understood and you can feel how important it was when I was growing up to have something as a library, because many of these opportunities may not be extended to our young people, but at least through a book, through a book, you can at least imagine you can at least be hungry and you can have a desire to achieve what you're reading about. I think that for our young people, when we think about, I have Bel Air Edison branch, I have what we call a Heron Run branch, I have the Hoffa Road branch, I have the South Clifton Park branch, all within my district. I know that that's a safe haven where young people will go to do their homework, maybe study. I know that that's a place where our seniors a hub for our seniors to be able to do exercises or have an enjoyable space. I know that it's a hub for our community associations to have meetings to make sure that we can understand what's going on in our neighborhoods. But I also know that for those folks that may not have a computer at home, may not have the proper internet service at home, that our libraries serve at that hub, not as an employment center, but let's say that you needed to fill out that application. So as you stated, the question is, why is this bill important? Why is Senate Bill 477 important? Megan, I say that as a young person, I know that experience first and forehand, but I also know that each and every young person needs the same opportunity that I was given. I know that our seniors who have dedicated 30 or 40 years of their life need the same opportunities that I was given. And I know that those folks that are job employment seekers need the same opportunities that I was given. But I also know if we're going to have thriving community associations, these are our hubs. And that is how our surrounding jurisdictions, as you mentioned, Anne Arundel County, Baltimore County, Howard County, have strong assets within their neighborhood, and Baltimore City deserves it too. 
And we thank you very much for your support. I want to pivot a little. Uh, You've been in Annapolis for six years, but this session is very different from anything that's been experienced before. A lot of things happening um, online. uh, When you guys are there, there seems like big booths around you. What's it been like in Annapolis this session? You know what? So this is my second session. and It is very unique. This is a very unique opportunity, uh, Megan. So we're in these things like phone booths to just make sure that we keep ourselves safe as colleagues because we still have to do the state's business. We have to pass a budget. And this is important because education is counting on us. Small businesses are counting on us. Our anchor institutions are counting on us. Those that may be facing eviction are counting on us. The learning loss that our young people are having are counting on us, this digital divide that we have within our communities, no matter whether you live in an urban jurisdiction or a rural jurisdiction, Western Maryland, Eastern Shore, we're all going through the same thing. They're counting on us. So this is all new. We do a number of our committee assignments. It's being held through a virtual experience. We are taking all votes in the Senate. It's happening in person. So the votes are happening in person. But there's a challenge in reference to democracy and trying to make sure that everyone has access to democracy from a witness standpoint or just from a point of view. So I'm taking on a significant amount of constituent meetings, advocacy meetings, via virtual, just to make sure that folks feel not apathetic, but make sure that they know that they're loud and they're heard by their legislator on the issues that are very important to them. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, now introducing the Teen Library of Things. Teens ages 10 to 19 can check out GoPro cameras, coding robots, a Nintendo Switch, and more. All you need is a library card. Details at prattlibrary.org. The pandemic is really, I mean, it's a crisis across the world, across the country, um, but it's hitting communities of color especially hard, especially here in Baltimore City. So what are you doing to advocate for those communities as we continue through the pandemic and within the fallout of the pandemic after? Megan, I think that's an important question. And before I get started, I just wanted to say I have a very important role in this. As one of 13 members, one of 13 members that sit on the committee budget and taxation, we have four standing committees within the Maryland State Senate but there's only one that handles our budget. And as the subcommittee chair for the Public Safety, Transportation and Environment Committee, and there's only four subcommittee chairs, within a $49 billion budget, we have a large responsibility. And the question is, what are we doing with that responsibility? So when we know that the CARES dollars have come to our neighborhoods and that a lot of large businesses with back rooms have the opportunity to fill out for these grant programs or these low interest loans. We have a responsibility to make sure that we have language in there that makes sure that those businesses that did not get anything are the priority. We have a responsibility to make sure that those businesses that are traditionally disenfranchised or or don't have the connections and access are a priority. We have to make sure not only are we talking about those businesses, but when we talk about the learning loss, And all the health pandemic did was exacerbate something we already knew from our disadvantaged communities. Megan, just so that you understand, and I'm sure that you do, but so the listeners, the audience understand, in a city where one in four families are living in poverty, this is nothing new. But when you take communities 
such as Oliver, that has a 42% poverty rate. When you take communities such as McEldrie Park, where one in two families are living in poverty, so it's 50%. When you take Beller Edison, where it's 38%. When you take Berea, when it's about 46%, you're no longer talking about one in four families. You're also talking about one in three and one in two. So we have a great responsibility. And this is something that we already knew, but others get to see it up close and personal when you talk about the digital divide and how some folks have internet service. And then we talk about some people that don't even have technology in the home because of the challenges that they face. Throughout this health pandemic, the food insecurities that happened and making sure that people have healthy food options. That wasn't reality for a lot of folks. Education in reference to some of the people that we are going to lose in reference to this generation because they're not logged on at this moment or they're absent from class. This is a very real opportunity or very real challenges that our neighborhoods face. So you ask the question, what are we doing? There's a Senate bill, Senate Bill 496, and there's close to a billion dollars that has been put forward from the governor. But what did the Senate do? We put about another half a billion, $520 million, $520 million to talk about issues that's important to us. $30 million to the MTA to make sure that our transit system can be there. We know that economies such as the restaurant industry, the hotel industry are hurting. So we put $26 million towards restaurant relief and $10 million towards hotels and hospitality businesses. Job training for people that are unemployed. The unemployment system itself is a debacle and making sure that you can get your unemployment insurance that you thought that it would be counting on at that moment, but you look two, three months have went past and you still haven't had this issue resolved. We're making sure that there are another 40 some people that are able to be helped from that standpoint, but we're also making sure that them folks have an extra thousand dollars on top of that for all of those folks that are unemployed at the moment. Looking for energy assistance for those people that are facing energy challenges. As stated, eviction assistance to make sure that we can have eviction. And putting for $50 million, Megan, for summer school catch-up with the learning loss that we're going to have and focusing on those areas of concentration of poverty. Megan, I can go on and on and on in reference to how intentional we are being in reference to making sure that the money is getting to the people that need it the most. But I'll stop to make sure that I see if you have any more questions. Sure. I feel like the lead story I see on the news every single night is about vaccine and getting vaccines into the arms of people, obviously everywhere, but especially in Baltimore City, I've heard an outcry of it's impossible to find a way to get vaccinated and that some people are scared to get vaccinated. So what is your messaging out there about getting a vaccine? Will you get it? Have you gotten it already? And how do you talk to your community about the importance of getting something like this? Yep. So let me be clear in reference to the vaccination process is very challenging. I think that we were recorded as fourth worst in the state at this moment. Mm -hmm. At this moment that we need real leadership. And I applaud the governor during the beginning of the health pandemic because he definitely showed real leadership. But the vaccination rollout has been a very strong challenge for a number of our communities. And what we are doing as the body of the Maryland State Senate is we have an acting secretary, Dennis Schrader, and we have not confirmed all confirmations of the Maryland State Senate for the respective agencies. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we held up that confirmation We actually just uh, did a number of confirmations and voted on them today, but that was not the acting secretary for the Maryland Department of Health. And we're going to hold his confirmation to the standard that he has to come before the Maryland State Senate every week 
to talk about the coordinated effort that we would like to see and how the vaccination process is going. And as stated, his confirmation will be held up to that standard. And that is how we're going to leverage our power to make sure that we can get the accountability that we need for our seniors, for our first responders, for those folks that are on the front lines, especially our uh, educators, and making sure that it's rolling out. I'm thankful for organizations such as the University of Maryland, Johns Hopkins Hospital, who are on the ground, making sure that we can get our teachers the vaccination if they want it, if they so choose. And I think that in West Baltimore, University of Maryland has taken 15 schools that they have said that this is going to come under our umbrella. We're going to have the responsibility for them. And Johns Hopkins has also stepped up to make sure that our educators of Baltimore City Public Schools have what they just so deserve and what they do so need. Megan, I think I would be remiss if I did not take the opportunity to lift up our chief, Dr. DeRozer, for our health department at this moment, for her leadership and just the coordinated efforts that she's doing across the city of Baltimore at this moment. We just opened up a hub over there at Baltimore City Community College to make sure that the vaccination rollout can happen. And I know that the governor has put forth a very large uh, space. I think that the convention center is opening up at this moment to make sure that we can have a good rollout and try to be intentional about the zip codes and neighborhoods that need it the most. I know a recent Pew study said about 39% of people are scared or don't want to take the COVID vaccine. Those numbers are increased in communities of color. So how do you talk to your constituents about the safety of taking a vaccine like that and what it means if we do have huge percentages of people that decide not to take it? You know what? So because it's so new and this was a very well pushed program, I should say, there is a level of concern. But we have to have this honest conversation around why the heightened fear is there. So we've seen where medical institutions did experiments on Black folks that we know weren't right, whether it's Henrietta Lacks and them using her her HeLa cells, whether it's some of our folks that served in the military and things of that nature. So we've seen historically where African-Americans have come up short, whether it's hundreds of years ago or just several decades ago. And that's a real fear. We should be respectful of that. We see that there are a number of our leaders, especially of our health leaders. I think that I saw Dr. DeRaza on social media just more recently when she actually got her vaccination process to kind of step forward and be a leader in reference to a voice leader, I should say, in reference to letting folks know that that is safe. And time will tell, as we see, in reference to how the community or whether the community is receptive to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is certainly completely warranted when you look at the history. We talked a little bit about the state budget, but what are you anticipating, maybe not in this year's budget, but in coming year's budgets, the impact of this pandemic is going to be and what your role is to advocate for Baltimore City as resources dwindle? Yeah, so the biggest thing that I'm going to see and what I will be focused on is education. It hurts my heart when I talk to Dr. Sanalisa and she talked about our kindergartners and our first graders and just the challenges and that being the largest group of folks that are having the roughest time with this digital learning piece of it. It hurts my heart because we know from data that if young people can't read by the third grade or at a certain age, that they are more than likely to face the criminal justice system. It hurts my heart because I know that we have a high increase of young people because of the challenges that they face that are not attending school at this moment. It hurts my heart because our young people also are having mental health challenges, not just adults are having mental health challenges and an increase in just not mental health challenges, but in the Black community, increase in suicides 
I should say, around this health pandemic. But our young people, we have to make sure that we look out for the context clues that may be there or just look for them and ask them because that's a real thing at this moment due to this health pandemic. The other piece is that these safe spaces that we call our schools were where we will be able to see signals or signs of child abuse. See that a number of the complaints that usually come through Department of Social Services is no longer existent because our young people are not in these safe spaces that they know as our schools. So the biggest thing that I'll be focusing on, Megan, in this year and years to come will be the learning loss that we have had these, uh, this full year, um, close to almost coming up in about a month where this health pandemic has been in front of us. And we know that this is not going to just affect this generation right here, but generations to come. My last question for you, you talked about the impact that your mom had on your life, sort of you were at a crossroads and she really pushed you one direction. If there's a young person out there that's listening to you, that listens to the direction that you were able to take and where you are now, what's your advice for that young person who's at that same crossroads you were at and maybe doesn't have that mom to push them in that direction? Yeah, I say just believe in yourself. I think that one of the challenges is, and I can remember there was a point in life where I just didn't believe. My mom would say to me, I'm going to keep believing in you until you believe in yourself. And at that moment, you find you don't want to hurt the people that's close to you. So I would tell my young people, I would tell my young people, never, ever give up that faith to be able to believe and know that anything that's in front of you is accomplishable. But it's very important from an education standpoint to make sure that you get the best education possible. And I always say that I'm an avid reader at this moment. And I remember that I lost track of that growing up in my teenage years and some in my adult, it kind of came back. But know that there are leaders that came right out of Baltimore City. There's a Victorine Adams. There's a Verda Welcome. There's a Third Marshall. There's a Reginald F. Lewis. There's a Clarence D. Burns. There's a Kirk Smoke. There are so many others that have made great contributions, not just to our city, just to our state, but to our country right here from the city of Baltimore. And I would say, if you don't feel as though you have the leadership next to you to be as successful as you could possibly be, please take the time to read about them because there's more than enough. And I would also say to my young people, especially my seniors in high school, get to know your legislators. One of the things that I try my best to do is stay inside of one of my schools once a week. Because I think that it's important for our young people to see people that look like them, that came from the same certain situations that they're maybe going through at that moment and know that anything is achievable. I say that not just as a legislator, but I say that as a father of a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 5-year-old. I look into those odds each and every day, and I know that anything is possible. So I just want to say thank you again, Megan, for this opportunity, but our young people this next generation, this generation in front of us has the greatest asset. It's not money. It's not the relationships, but they have time. Take advantage of time and make sure that you are doing everything possible to make sure that you're extending that time and most efficient and effective with the time that you have. Thank you, Megan. Senator Corey McRae, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, sir. Yes, ma'am. You have a blessed day. Thanks. You too. Miss going to story time? You and your kids can attend virtually. Check out live story times from your favorite Pratt librarians every Monday and Thursday morning. Details at prattlibrary.org. 
served 12 years on the Baltimore City Council. Now Bill Henry has taken on a new role as city comptroller. Comptroller Henry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. I know this is a very um, basic question, but I want to make sure people understand it and know. So can you tell me, I think people know what a city council member is, but what is a comptroller? That's quite all right. I spent a year campaigning for this job and it was made very, very clear to me by the people of Baltimore City that most people did not know what a comptroller was and what it did. The comptroller is the watchdog of Baltimore City government. It's the position that is designed to keep an eye on the mayor, make sure that the agencies that report to the mayor are doing their best work, that they're being effective and efficient. It's the position that is responsible for making sure that people know what is happening with the finances of Baltimore City. As the comptroller, I'm not the CFO, like the comptroller is sometimes in a private company or in some other political subdivisions. Here, I have just a sort of a watchdog role in that regards. But the important thing is about making the decisions of the city, most of which are, frankly, made by the mayor, Mm -hmm. making sure that those decisions are communicated to the people of Baltimore City. The shortest and easiest way I can get that across is I am convinced that if more people knew how the city was spending its money, we would spend it better. So my job as comptroller is to get us to the point where anybody who wants to know how the city is spending their money can easily find out. I want to go back a little bit in your past, just because for people that don't know you, don't know your story, you grew up in Baltimore. Tell me about growing up in Baltimore, and was politics something that you were always passionate about? (laughs) Was politics something I was always passionate about? For your older listeners, I was the campaign manager, John Anderson's 1980 campaign for the president in my middle school. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, my father, my father was involved in the civil rights movement back in the 60s, and he was part of a group of activists who sort of reframed the activism, the civil rights activism they were doing into political activism. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they saw the system having problems, and they were going to try to reform it from within. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my father and a bunch of his friends and co-activists They ran for state legislature back in 1966. And the story I often tell is that every single person on the ticket won, except for my father. And (laughs) what my my father took away from that experience was that he hated being a candidate for office, but he loved campaigns. And so what he did for the next 30-some years is he was the one who ran the campaigns for the rest of his friends and fellow activists, mostly in East Baltimore, mostly local government, city council, House of Delegates, state senator. But he did do some citywide campaigns and some city portions of statewide campaigns. And so my sister and I, we grew up in a household. If you grow up in a household where your dad is running a political campaign, you're a campaign worker. You're the cheapest, easiest form of campaign labor there is. And so For three years out of every four during my childhood, my summers were spent wearing somebody's campaign t-shirt, handing out flyers and knocking on doors. 
So I don't know if it's fair to say that politics was my passion. <laughs> but, um, I grew up very strongly exposed to it. And the positive side of this, from my perspective, is that I grew up in a household where uh, city council people and general assembly members, they were just grownups who were friends with my parents. And they would come over sometimes, or my dad would take me with him when he went to meet with them. And it's just like seeing any other friends of your parents. For me, I grew up with city council person being a job. It's just something that you can be when you grow up. Like if your father's friend is a lawyer or your mother's friend is a mechanical engineer, uh, you could be a doctor, you could be uh, a therapist, you could be a House of Delegates member. It's just another thing you can do. Mm -hmm. And as I got older and started to have a better sense of what I did actually want to do with my life, I realized the nice thing about government is that it affects everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, if you have a yen to help, which I do, and you have a strong desire to make things better where you live, which I do, uh, local government is an obvious place to start because there's so much that needs to be done. And it's the best place to start if you want to help out in lots of different ways. I think we were so used to seeing you in the council chambers. <laughs> what made you say, like, we're, I want to go for this new job? What inspired you to do that? Um, well, it came from two directions, actually. One direction is as much as I enjoyed being a council person, as much as I enjoyed not just the work, but the opportunity, it really is nice being able to help people on the retail basis that you can do when you're a council person. Um, I had said back in, I want to say 2012, mm -hmm. early in my second term, I introduced a charter amendment proposing term limits for a local office. And the rationale for me was, it was one thing for public service to be a career, that's laudable, but no given office, I, I felt, should be a career. Uh, we should always have the opportunity to see what somebody else might want to bring to that office. And the Charter Amendment didn't pass, but I still felt a commitment to it. So when I was running for my third term on the council in 2016, I made it clear to my constituents, if you send me back, this will be the last term. I'm not going to run again for re-election in 2020. I think somebody else should have a chance. Mm -hmm. And so I already knew that I wasn't going to be running for re-election to the council. And that sort of freed me up to think about what would be the way that I could help the most? What would be the way I could make the best contribution? And in the fall of 2018, in the span of like two weeks, three different people came up to me and things and said, hey, I hear you're running for comptroller. <laughs> and I was like, really? What? <laughs> it's like, I hadn't even thought about that. And it, I traced it back to a grad student on Facebook who had done a thought experiment, basically. And he was just like trying to imagine who would be good candidates for all the different citywide offices in the 2020 elections. And I thanked him. I, I told him I was flattered. And then I got a call from Ben Smith, who at the time was the head of the Democratic State Central Committee for Baltimore City. And we had coffee and he said that, you know, you really should think about running for a comptroller. You know, I, I've looked at your background. You know, you have an MBA with a concentration in finance. You got a 
an undergraduate degree in urban policy. And your whole time on the council has been really focused on independent thought and action and trying to improve city government itself, uh, sometimes in the more wonky, less splashy ways that don't necessarily get a lot of headlines, but really get at the structure of government. And uh, he said, you would make a really good comptroller. And I said, thank you. And let me think about it for a little while. And so I was thinking about it. And while I was thinking about it, I was at a hearing of the Biennial Audits Oversight Commission, uh, which I got to tell you is exactly as exciting as it sounds. But the previous, previous council president had put me on it because it only met twice a year. So I could only get into so much trouble. Um, and, And at that hearing, a former city auditor, a now former, was explaining that she had not released some audits when they were done because the finance department didn't like them. Like Mm. they didn't like the conclusions. And when she said tough, you know, this is what we came up with. The controller, the previous controller now backed up the finance director who works for the mayor. And I was looking at that situation. I was thinking at that point, (laughs) healthy Holly hadn't happened yet. So there wasn't the widespread realization that the comptroller and the mayor at the time were actually business partners mm-hmm. and, and very close in that regards. But everybody in City Hall knew that. And I was sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, if I was business partners with the person I'm supposed to be the watchdog of, mm-hmm. you know, I would be bending over backwards to avoid any kind of appearance of collusion or deference. And yet our comptroller seems perfectly comfortable doing 180 degrees the opposite. So I went back to Ben and I said, yeah, okay, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's uh, let's figure out how to make this work. And it was a heck of a ride. It was it was an 18 month long campaign, which was the longest I'd ever worked on a campaign for anything before. I raised more money for that one citywide campaign. I think I think I added it up that I I raised more money for that than for all four of my previous runs for city council combined. (laughs) You talk a lot about, you know, transparency and term limits. Your predecessor was in that role for 25 years. One of the key goals you talk about moving forward is increasing the transparency and accessibility of information. Mm-hmm. One of the things I hear, at least from a lot of Baltimore um, constituents, is there is this lack of trust because of things like that previous where you start in trying to build back um, for the constituents in Baltimore. So so there has been a, I'm going to be kind and call it an inadvertent veil of secrecy around the city's finances uh, for my whole life. I mean, it's, it's never been easy to find out details about city spending. Back when I was younger, the legitimate reason for that was it wasn't easy to find out anything because we weren't really fully into the information technology age. <laughs> And, you know, offices are running on paper. And so if you wanted information, you needed to get paper, which meant actually going downtown to that office and asking them to show you the paper. Mm -hmm. But over the last 25 years, we've had just this real explosion in the opportunity to be open and transparent with data, thanks to the internet. And some parts of government have taken advantage of that the whole time. The city council, for example, 
started putting its legislative tracking system online back in the late 90s. So for the last 20 years, if you had any questions about a specific city council bill or resolution or wanted to look up different kinds of bills and resolutions relating to a specific subject, you've been able to just go onto your computer, type in some keywords on the council's website under search legislation, and access a legislative database that would give you all the information you were looking for. We have not done that with the city's financial information. Mm -hmm. And so for the same 20 years where the city council was making all of their information available, two floors down, the comptroller's office was continuing to just do everything with paper. And when I, when I moved in in early December uh, and they were showing me around, there were two whole rooms in the office that were dedicated to file cabinets to maintain just the most recent two years of paper. They ship everything every year. They would ship a year's worth over to the archives so there'd be room for the next year. And there's a room full of back files that for whatever reason are being kept from previous years that haven't been sent to the archives yet. And I'm looking at all of this and I'm thinking, if all of this was scanned into a searchable database so that people, wherever they are, could just type in their questions and get the answers on, you know, how much money the city is spending on contracting, how much money the city has spent on procurement. We had a, a, a person called my office as a council person about a year and a half ago. They said they knew somebody who wanted to put in a contract. They wanted to offer to dredge the lake in Druid Hill Park. And they wanted to see a copy of the last contract for when the city had dredged the lake so that they could you know, design their proposal. Mm-hmm. There was no way to look that up. Mm-hmm. If you went online, the comptroller's office maintains back copies of the agendas for board of estimates meetings, but you would literally have to click on each week's agenda one at a time and read through it to see if there was a dredging contract that week. And if so, was it the one for Druid Park before you could then go and ask for that information? And that's just, it's not good for people. It's not good for small businesses that want to do work with the city. It's especially not good for investigative journalists who are trying to make connections between campaign finance records and who's giving money and then who's getting contracts with the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that greater openness and transparency would definitely benefit the city. And so that's why the number one goal for our office is to modernize the operations bring us more fully into the 21st century so that all of the information that we have access to can be accessible to the people of Baltimore as well. Going forward, I feel like the finances of the city may be more critical than ever as we look at the impact that the pandemic is going to have on statewide finances and citywide finances. How is your office preparing for what is coming? And what are some of the ways that you feel like you might be able to mitigate some of the fallout from the pandemic? Oh, I'm not even going to pretend that that's something that my office can mitigate to any any significant effect. 
this pandemic is going to be a body blow to the economy, already has been a deeper hit to the economy than really anything else in living memory. I mean, you've got to go back to the Depression to see something on the scale of how this is going to affect not just Baltimore City's economy or the state's economy or even the U.S. economy. This is a global phenomenon, and it's going to require absolutely massive intercession to minimize it, not even to completely fix it. At the risk of being partisan, I am incredibly ecstatic over the the change of administration in Washington Mm -hmm. because the previous administration clearly did not get it. I don't know if they were listening to the wrong economists or they just weren't listening to any, but there is no way to inject the amount of money into the economy that we need to do in order to keep us from spiraling further down into a real depression. You can't do that unless the federal government is doing it. Baltimore City, the state of Maryland, all state and local governments generally have clauses in their charters or constitutions that require them to have balanced budgets every year. Mm -hmm. And so it's outside of our literal legal ability to borrow the amount of money to put back into circulation to try to give us a fighting chance of surviving this. That's why it's so important that the coming stimulus plan involve money directly for state and local governments. The proposal right now is for $350 billion, just working off of sheer averages. That would be like $7 billion for Maryland, you know, several hundred million for Baltimore City. And that's the level of intercession that we're going to need if we're going to make sure that the people of Baltimore City are well taken care of. It feels like audits have been a little willy-nilly in the city um, (laughs) for years. I would imagine at least your office being able to really crack down on the auditing process would at least let us know where that money's going. Sure. And like I I had mentioned earlier, there is now a Biennial Audits Oversight Commission that was created by a charter amendment back in 2016. And that whole charter amendment process around first quadrennial and then biennial audits was really the beginning of the recognition that the city had not been doing what it should be doing in terms of keeping an eye on its own agencies. And you can talk to some of the people who were involved in that, and they would say that they were surprised that that whole fight went by and very little of it involved people complaining about the comptroller at the time even though the Department of Audits reports to the Comptroller. Mm -hmm. So I am very focused on making sure that not only do we do all the audits that we're required to do now by law, thanks to the biennial audits charter provision, but I also want to make sure that we're doing the additional audits that need to be done, that we're making sure that when there are issues that are of concern, both to the citizens as a whole and to, frankly, those of us in City Hall, like, for example, the water billing situation. Uh, you know, this, is, this is a situation where it's been an open secret for, I don't even know if it, open secret is the right word for it. Everyone has known for years that the water billing system was screwed up, but the previous controller never picked up the phone 
much less sent an email to the city auditor and said, hey, why don't we audit the water billing system? Mm -hmm. So that was one of the first things that I said to the city auditor when I came in in December is I want you to put an audit of the water billing system into the 2021 audit plan and uh, let's sit down with the mayor's office and get an idea of what information do we need to have so that the mayor and the head of DPW can make the right decisions about what to do going forward with the water billing system. But auditing for impact, I think that that is probably the second most important thing the controller can do with the resources that already exist under the charter, and I'm committed to doing that. And finally, my last question for you, um, you know, there's new leadership in Baltimore. We have a new mayor. There are a lot of new council members. You are new in this position. What kind of hope does that give you as we move into the future in Baltimore? It gives me a lot of hope. I mean, the fact that we have had such dramatic changes in the last, now the last three election cycles, uh, 16, 18, and 20. In, in 16, we turned over literally most of the city council. In mm-hmm. 18, we turned over all but one of the state senate, uh, the state senators for for Baltimore City. And then in 2020, we got a new mayor, a new council president, a new comptroller, and almost half of the council is new. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it, at this point now, I started on the council in 2007, and there is literally one person left on the council who was there when I got there. So there's been a lot of turnover. And I honestly can say that the turnover itself gives me hope because the truth of the matter is we haven't been doing well for a while. And so if you want to get a different result, you've got to take different actions. And that often involves having different people in charge. And I think that by turning some people out of office entirely and by moving some other people into different offices, I think that we've given Baltimore a chance to to run things differently. And better is a different. So if you want things to be better, and we do want things to be better, we're going to have to do a lot of things differently. And I continue to have hope that that's what this new leadership team is going to do. Comptroller Bill Henry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been great. Need help getting connected? The Pratt Library is here for you. Hotspots, tablets, and more, all available for checkout, just like you check out a book. Head to prattlibrary.org and reserve yours today. Available for pickup at any sidewalk service location. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.